Human Vortex Training and Menachem Brody present the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, physiology, psychology, tech, and much more to help you get fitter, faster, and stronger in and out of your sport, giving you expert insights, talking with other leading experts. And now, your host, world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Matt, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Long-time reader, first-time converser, I guess would be the the term. (laughs) (laughs) Interlocutor. Interlocutor. Yes, that's a good one. That's oh, that's a GRE word, man. <laughs> well, you've had uh, quite a, a, a I, I guess you could call it a career, but I'd say more of an adventure, right? As a writer and as an athlete. I have. And, and as a coach and, and kind of increasingly as an entrepreneur too, which is the last thing I expected uh, for my life. But yeah, uh, adventure is a good word for sure. Do you mind kind of sharing with the listeners a little bit uh, like highlights for you, not necessarily, well, this book and then this happened, but what have been your highlights uh, through your athletic career from, you know, about the time when uh, Stranger Things is set, you know, mid 1980s all the way until today? (laughs) Yeah, boy, you know, so many, Um, you know, it's, you know, for me, it's been, you know, I, I'm an athlete like any other on one level, but I'm, you know, because I'm also, you know, a writer, um, I get to kind of choose my own adventure. And, um, you know, I've approached life as a blank canvas for a long time. Um, I, I remember, you know, just a light bulb going off when, when my dad said to me that when I was still in high school, that I could go to college wherever I wanted. Like if I could get in, um, you know, I could go um, regardless of where it was or how much it cost. Like we, we would find a way. And I thought, Oh my God, that is amazing. Um, and, and, and so I ended up you know, doing nothing terribly exotic. I went to Haverford college uh, uh, outside of Philadelphia. I did a year in, in St. Andrews, but that I thought I want to, I want to, I want to just approach the rest of my life that way. Like it's, it's wide open and you can do what you want. And so you know, I ran to high school, then got away from it and then got back into it in my mid late twenties and then triathlon. And that was kind of my attitude was, um, you know, let's just, uh, you know, just, you know, whatever strikes my fancy, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and find a way to, to make it happen. So some of my adventures have, have included things like, um, you know, running a marathon on a wilderness reserve in, in Kenya. So it was actually, it, it, it's a, you know, imagine a safari without the Jeep, like the Jeep is taken away and you're running a marathon in, a, instead, like with giraffes and rhinoceri around you and, and, uh, and forest rangers or park rangers with high powered rifles, like crouching in the lee of a tree that you pass and you could, you might not even notice them unless you, unless you look up. So things like that, you know, running with a lot of, or training, training with a lot of um, household name athletes. You know, I've, I've run with, Kara Goucher and Haile Gebrselassie um, and a lot of others. Um, and then, you know, I had a stint as a, as a fake professional runner, as I like to phrase it. When I was 46, um, I joined uh, sort of as an, an honorary member, uh, the NAZ Elite 
professional running team based in Flagstaff, spent an entire summer with them, just completely living. And I should clarify, even when I was the age of the athletes, you know, the, the real pros on the team, I was not elite caliber. So not only was I, I'm not as talented as these people, I was literally twice the age of, of some of them, but that was just an incredible experience as well. So there's, there's some highlights. No matter what happens or it comes my way, I'll make it happen. Like that is a, a hell of an attitude, right? Like so many people now are, I need to have this degree from this college, from this thing by this time so I can do this. And they're so linear. It sounds like you really did see the, the world as your oyster. And it's not a, a flavor du jour, so to speak, but more of where's my heart taking me or, or where's my passion taking me? That's what it sounds like at least. Yeah, I think that that's fair. And, you know, it's not for everyone because you have to have, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. Um, and, and I am, <laughs> and you have to be comfortable with risk as well. And I've certainly, you know, landed on my head, uh, metaphorically speaking a few times, you know, taking that approach, but, you know, after you do that, you know, a few times you realize, you know, well, if that's as bad as it gets, <laughs> that's not so bad. Um, and then, you know, then, then you're even more tolerant of risk going forward, you know, cause you see, you know, the worst that can happen. Um, and it always, you never regret it. Uh, you know, the, all the cliches apply, nothing ventured, nothing gained, uh, like was it fortune favors the bold. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's worked out for me again. There are other people for whom the linear approach is, um, you know, step one, step two, step three is, is the, the best formula. But for me, like winging it um, has been, you know, very rewarding. It, it's just neat, you know, because I look at, you know, where I am today and it, like there's no script could have led me here. And, I, and I'm, I'm happy where, where I am today. So, yeah, good formula for Matt Fitzgerald, if, if not anyone else. And, and that's the key to success in anything, right? Tom Brady, Warren Buffett, Michael Jordan, all of these guys uh, have each gone, Meb, have each gone through their own um, – I guess morph morph morphing. I don't. I can't even think of the word right now. But they've kind of gone through their own metamorphosis. There we go. Another GRE word. The title of today's episode is GRE words that you got wrong. <laughs> um, but that metamorphosis is very much their own, and I think that's one of the things that endurance athletes uh, are looking for is for that blueprint. So you know, to kind of pull it into to your world, the last ten years the 80, 20 rule. I mean, that applies to all athletes, endurance athletes, at least as far as the intensity breakdown and each person will see results. And then it's up to them to work with their genetic modifications or environmental changes and, and restraints to be able to get the best they can. But when it comes to the mental side of thing and being able to say, you know, I'm, I'm not jealous of so-and-so I'm not jealous of, of Jerry because he's running a 247 marathon. He's different than I am. He doesn't have my job, my kids, whatever else. It's wait, wow, Jerry's really running well. Let's talk to him and see, you know, what things kind of strike with me and what maybe I can take and try for myself and making it an individual uh, recipe as opposed to just following the recipe. You know, coincidentally, I'm working on a, a, a blog post for my 8020 endurance blog right now that's all about um, uh, kind of as I phrase it, the burden of personality. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 50 years old now. And, you know, when you, when you, when you get that far along in life, you kind of realize that you are who you are and you've got to work with what you got. Um, but that being said, like what you've got to work with doesn't necessarily like align perfectly with 
the life you want to live or the goals you want to achieve. So you have to find a way, you know, to get them to match up as well as possible. It's actually a blog post that was inspired by a runner I coach right now who um, there's this phrase that, that uh, Andrew Jackson came up with in reference to himself. He said, I was born for a storm and a calm does not suit me. And I, I, I've, I've known a variety of people over the years and I've worked with a number of athletes who that born for a storm tag definitely applies. They're, you know, they're either restless spirits or, you know, they're not, you know, things that you really need to, to be, to succeed as an endurance athlete, like discipline and consistency, that they're not really in their bag of tricks personality wise, but they might be like very talented and passionate and hardworking that, you know, they have a lot of the other ingredients. So it's just like, okay, how do you, you know, like your personality is not made to order for success and endurance, but you know, you deserve it as much as anyone's like, how do we find a way to, you know, to, to, you know, you know, sort of work around, uh, you know, your quote unquote weaknesses and then, you know, really exploit your strengths. Um, and you know, it doesn't, that doesn't make it easy, but like framing it that in that way, just being conscious of, of it can, it can really work to the benefit of, of every athlete. It's like, okay, I am who I am, but I'm not just going to say, you know, that's fine. And, and like the sport has to like meet me where I am. Like you kind of have to, you know, meet in the middle. Well, that's, that's the art of it, isn't it? it is, and that's where the great coaches I think are, are made in that realization of I'm going to coach this individual based on my experiences with other athletes and myself, but still be open, very open and have that, respect and it really is a mutual respect for allowing that to be an athlete-led progression of course there's times where the coach needs to say this is the way we're going to do things you know we're going to try this uh, but being open to after a week or two weeks well clearly it's not working what do you think would work and then actually listening and, and finding you know maybe you're not making lemonade you're making lemon drop cocktails at a, a, a <laughs> happy hour right so that's what the athletes got yeah i think we we both know an athlete where yeah lemonade is not their thing but lemon drop cocktails they're there in a drop of a hat <laughs> Yeah, that, that's really true. And, and for me, you know, I guess, yeah, this is probably um, consistent with what I said about, you know, life being, being a blank canvas and, and, and such. But as a coach, I, I get the biggest thrills uh, out of coming up with a solution for an athlete that, that wasn't, you know, already there, like in, in as option A, B or C or, you know, you know, instead of pulling something out of my bag of tricks, like coming up with a new trick, um, that's just, it's deeply satisfying. Again, like as a coach, you know, that not every coach is comfortable with that. They sort of want to like, you know, very quickly be able to say, okay, here's your problem. And like, here's, here's, you know, my stock solution to, to that problem. You know, it's fine when that is the case, obviously you can't, I mean, it would be exhausting to have to, you know, like invent the wheel every time an athlete you're working with hits a snag. But, but I do get the, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm most inclined to give myself a pat on the back when, you know, an athlete encounters a challenge or a difficulty and by working together um, we come up with something that works that, you know, was not obvious. Now, is that because of the creativity that you get to pull in? Because I noticed, especially in your latest book, uh, The uh, Comeback Quotient, there's a lot of um, cr creative 
threads in there, right? And then just as you're like, wow, that's really interesting. It's like, well, here's a study or here's a case study of how this might work out. Is that the, 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 the creative part of coaching that you find that, that most reward? Or is it a matter of here's an obstacle in front of us? We have no idea how to go up around or through it, but we're going to work <laughs> together and, and just, you know, essentially MacGyver something. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it, that's it sounds like two ways of, of saying the same thing, but but the first one, I guess, is the one that um, I, I I latch onto most readily. Uh, I, I am I am through and through a creative person. You know, that's that's what I I live for. You know, I, I've still haven't found anything I I like more than running. I, I really like how Steve Prefontaine used to talk about, and other athletes do. Um, uh, Elliot Kipchoge does sometimes that they talk about um, racing as a performance, like in the, in the sense of like, almost like performance art, like, like a spectacle, something beautiful that you create um, that didn't exist until you, you did it. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I am, I'm in a sense, a one trick pony. It's just like, I, I love to um, create something out of nothing and, and, you know, whether I do that through writing, which is probably the only thing I'm actually any good at or, or coaching, or, you know, I've done, you know, um, you know, I'm actually in the process of launching my own podcast and like some of the, like the technical stuff, uh, thank goodness I have a co-host for it. Like, you know, like she, she's handling a lot of stuff that like, I guess is less creative in nature. So yeah, whatever it is I do, including coaching, I, I do it kind of um, like with an artist's eye. <laughs> Well, that's, I'm, you know, to put it bluntly, and I, I don't know if this is the right answer, but the one that comes to mind is that seems to be what's missing about coaching these days is, and this isn't a, a knock against coaches, right? I, I did it. I'm sure you did it as well. We read a book or two that are fundamental for us that, that strike with us as true from where we are. And we follow that path until we don't anymore where we're like, huh, I wonder what is over here under this book. Oh, you mentioned the, the, the park rangers. I wonder what's up in this treehouse. Oh, that's a safari <laughs> ranger with an elephant gun. All right, let's not go there. But you start exploring a little bit as opposed to you know having this nice paved highway. And what I'm trying to get at is coaching is very much an art as it is a science. I mean, I, I've gone a couple of times on being hard on those who are only research-based because the research was done on such a small group, usually 20 to 30 age males, uh, not really including females, although we're thankfully seeing that change. And there's only so much a research article will actually tell you. It's that art side that seems to be very missing in, in today's coaching philosophy and thought process. Yes, I, I hate to keep bringing up my, my blog, but by this point, I've, I've written about everything. And so I, I did write uh, something recently about exactly that, how uh, this is, you know, this is... Um, you know, kind of self-justifying in a way, but it is also what I, what I believe. But I think that knowledge is hugely overrated in, in a lot of fields, including coaching. To me, knowledge is easy. You know, it's like, if you don't know it, you can look it up, but, but being a master of process is much more difficult. And, and from my perspective, a lot more important. Um, it, it contributes a lot more to, to successful coaching, just like, um, you know, just being able to know how to succeed with an athlete versus, you know, if, if, if an athlete comes to me and uh, to work with me and they have a goal and they're a long way away from it. Um, and, and they ask, you know, do you know, 
how I'm going to get there, you know, my honest answer will be no, I have no, I have no idea, but I do know we will get there and, you know, we will, we will figure it out. Um, I think, you know, that's, you know, I'm not the world's greatest coach, but the, you know, the great, the truly great coaches I have known, that's, that's how they operate. They're really not, they're not the people who know everything they know, but they're, they are the people who know how to figure things out. And have the resources that they're not afraid to refer out. Like, you know, uh, I don't know about you. It sounds like you did have a couple of coaches along the path that you may have asked or run into a problem where they didn't know the answer and they were actually quick to refer you to another coach to work with them. And for me, at least that was eye-opening. Was that something that you encountered early in your career? I know you started running at what, age 10, 11 after, uh, you know, after just watching a a race uh, with Joan and you're just like, man, I I need to, I need to run. That is my calling. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Um, You know, I had had an interesting conversation with uh, a woman named Carrie Jackson Beadle. Um, She's a sports a sort of a mental performance coach, sports psychologist. She, she co-authored the book Rebound on uh, dealing with the um, psychological dimension of injury, sports injury. And um, in the course of, of that conversation, we, we were talking about like, what are, the, what are the top qualities that you see consistently in, in the best coaches? And, and one of them uh, it was humility. Um, and I, I, I've seen that, you know, again and again, that, you know, you know, the, the most successful or, you know, effective coaches, they don't care. They don't need complete control and they don't care really who gets the credit <laughs> for an athlete's success. They're just like, you know, whatever it takes, whatever it works, you know, within the bounds of what's, you know, legal and safe, <laughs> um, you know, that they're, they're willing to do that. Um, the analogy I make is, is like, um, a great coach is often more like a band leader than a, you know, a, you know, a, a lead singer, <laughs> you know, where they, they're the people who like bring the good singer and the good musicians together and just, you know, you know, create all the conditions for other people um, to, you know, to, to make, you know, to complete the job, to make the magic happen. So I try to do that myself, um, you know, in my work with coaches. So, all the time, you know, I, I will, I will refer them. I, you know, right now there's one athlete I coach who is a triathlete and, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a competent triathlon coach, but I'm, uh, you know, a swim technique expert. I'm not. So at one point, you know, wh- wh- when I had gotten him as far along as I could, felt I could in, in swimming specifically, we brought in a, a swim specialist to, to coach. So now like, you know, we use the training peaks platform and, and, you know, you have to, you have to give access um, you know, the athlete has to, you know, link up with coaches to allow them to have access to their training. And, and, uh, you know, I had no problem, you know, allowing, you know, another cook in the kitchen, so, so to speak, but I know a lot of athletes would have, they, they would have got, I mean, t- coaches would, they, they would get territorial, um, they would get defensive and, and that's not good. You know, um, you know, no coach is, is great in, in every, you know, there's some like Ben Rosario, the coach of NAZ elite, the, the protein that I, I trained with, you know, he, he's not a huge nutrition guy. So um, I worked with Oscar, you drip, one of the top um, you know, sport, endurance sports nutrition experts in the world to come up with my, my fueling plan for the, uh, for the Chicago marathon when I was there. And, you know, Ben had absolutely no problem with that, even though some of the stuff Oscar wanted me to do required that actually Ben 
like tweak some of my workouts, you know? So he was really, you know, like sort of meddling uh, in Ben's business. He had absolutely no problem with it because he, 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 you know, valued Oscar's expertise and, and all he wanted was for me to succeed, to succeed. Well, that seems, and I'm a, I'm a bit jaded, like at this point right now in my career, I, I, I used that term about two weeks ago. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I have my, my pole in the ground or my, my flag in the ground a little bit, but with the advent and popularity of Instagram and Facebook uh, and, and also YouTube, there seems to be an immense growth of coaches hubris and uh-huh. not, in, not in a good way, right? They're like, this is how you do it. This is the only way. Now I, I do that with a couple of things. The McGill crunch is one because people do it wrong. And when you do it wrong, you can actually <laughs> cause pain. Uh, but I'm very open about it and transparent. Like it's a good guess, but when you've actually learned and seen it in person and done it, it's a completely different exercise. But for other stuff, like you said, another coach, Matt, listen, I'm just going to show you my secret. You can't show this to anybody, <laughs> right? Like... <laughs> We're all working off the same blueprint. There's no magic book. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I just think, you know, if, if you, you know, if you're insecure in any role, you know, that, that says everything about you and not about, you know, the nature of, of the work you do. Like if you feel like, you know, you have to hoard knowledge um, or, you know, you, you can't, you know, you know, cede some control to, to someone else, then, you know, you, you're probably not very good at what you do and you know it. And that's the real reason, <laughs> you know, you're, <laughs> you act the way you do. Like, you know, if you're confident, like, that's how I feel. Like, you know, I know I'm not the best coach. I know there are better coaches out there, but I also know that I'm, I'm probably you know, above average. So like, you know, I, I kind of, I know where I stand in the pecking order and I'm not worried about, um, you know, proving to my athletes that they need me or they can't do better. I just, I do, I just do the best I can and kind of hope and trust that that it's good enough. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I'm reading a book, uh, the the biography on Buffett by uh, Lowenstein, uh, the making of American capitalist. And I'm, I think of chapter nine right now. And, there's a quote in there from the Geico uh, back in 1970s or 1968, 69. They did a, a research to see because they started taking on more risky drivers. And they found that 83% of drivers felt that they were more ca- careful than the average. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of one I, of that. I, like, I, 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 <laughs> I cite that. I cite that same uh, statistic myself. I love it. Yeah, because it's so true, right? It's like you have to have just enough confidence to know, like, this is what I know. This is my castle. And this is all the stuff I don't know. But if you come to me, this is the main point that I can help you with. And then the other stuff we're going to figure out for you. And as needed, the great coaches, one, they all seem to say, like, I'm an okay coach. Like, I've helped a number of athletes, but really it's about personalizing. Uh, Whereas the coaches that you should avoid are like, oh, I'm the best coach in the world because this athlete and that athlete. It's so confusing for people out there to be able to figure out, like, who is the right coach for them at the right time? It, yeah, that, that is so true. And that, that, that's another thing that I think, you know, the coaches, you know, maybe I, I, I painted with too broad a brush stroke in answering your last question, because I think there are some coaches who they are good, but they're also a little secure, insecure at, at the same time. And, and for those who are sort of, um, you know, sort of who, who fit that description, some something that I think that w- would be helpful for them to recognize is that is just that, that even, even the greatest coach 
is not a great coach for every athlete. So, you know, if you can't, if you just, if there's an athlete who you just struggle with, you know, struggle to help them succeed, that isn't necessarily a reflection on you as a coach. They just might be a better fit for, for someone else out, out there. And, you know, just, you know, recognizing that, you know, just as a standing possibility, I think can, can help you um, just feel like less of a failure if you can't succeed with every athlete. Now, if you're not succeeding with any athletes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> there's, there's a cutoff there. <laughs> right. But I just have the worst luck with clients. <laughs> oh, that reminds me, Alan Lim was on a couple weeks ago and uh, he, he threw out, let's see, actually, maybe you, you'll get this one. What's the difference between grit and stubbornness? Uh, I'm, I'm no good with these. Just, just tell me. Oh, I was awful. I, I took like five or six guesses. And I was like, I have no idea. He's like, success. You're gritty if you succeed. <laughs> if you don't, right. you're stubborn. And that's a lot <laughs> of coaches, right? And even, and we'll kind of do a hard turn here towards the book, just just your your most recent book, I should say, like the book, like let's choose one of many that Matt's written. Right. But the, the best coaches uh, seem to also have that uh, character. And this is what struck me as I started working my way through uh, the comeback quotient is that chapter one is the ultra realists. And that to me, the first thing that came to mind reading the chapter title, uh, or more correctly, listening to it on, on the on the audiobook as I was driving was, he's going to talk about coaches, the best coaches. And then I was like, wait, wait, no, no, the book's about the athletes. But that's a shared uh, trait for the highly successful coaches and athletes and that they're ultra realists. They, they recognize what they know, they accept what they don't know, and they're willing to find the right piece at the right time to be able to move beyond that. Is that kind of what you found as well through your experience as a coach and through writing that book? Yes. I mean, quite honestly, I could have written a book um, with the same message that wasn't about sports at all. Um, and in fact, you know, one of, one of my hopes in writing the book was that it would transcend sport. Um, uh, you know, so yes, it is athlete focused. Um, but um, I, I think, you know, it's human psychology, right? So, I mean, you know, everything that applies within a specific domain is, you know, is going to apply generally, um, not on every level, not on every detail, uh, but but for sure, you know, I think the most successful coaches are, are ultra realists um, every bit as much as the most successful athletes are. And I wanted to make this connection. I'm glad you pointed this out is that it's, it, it transverses sport and sport is really, you know, after the year of 2020, you know, all 838 days of it, uh, <laughs> we've come to realize, I think as a society that sport is far more than a spectacle for us. It, it's a way for us to be inspired, to motivate because the other trend that I've seen as far as those who are ultra realists are those who, and of course, we can argue about numbers and genetics and all this other stuff, but at the core of it, those who come back from a severe illness, such as cancer uh, or a serious injury, I, I think, I can't remember, but I think in the preface or in the intro, you mentioned somebody uh, who is paraplegic, I believe, but yes. these stories, it's harder for us as humans to connect to that because part of it touches on, on this mortality, right? Well, they came back from this great illness and like, wow, that's really inspiring. And then it scares the crap out of you. So you're like, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Whereas sport, you're like, oh yeah, LeBron, you know, lost the game. So it's okay. He'll, he'll come back. It's so difficult for us as human beings to accept that psychology in one area 
even though it traverses. Is that something that you found as you've gone through writing the book of like, wow, there's so many parallels in the rest of our life, but maybe it touches our, our mortality and people just avoid that because it's scary. Yeah, that's, that's why I, you know, each chapter in the book, you know, sort of advances the argument, but is, um, is, um, illustrated by a real world example of, of some, you know, ultra realist athlete who, um, exemplifies whatever it is I'm, I'm talking about in that chapter. And I made a point of choosing some examples of, of athletes who faced, um, you know, setbacks, uh, or adversity that, that transcended sport, you know, so there's a chapter where I, I you know, talk a lot about uh, Rob Crar, the champion ultra runner who suffers from major depression. Well, you know, major depression, you know, he, he you know, that's much bigger. It, it wasn't, it wasn't something that, uh, you know, occurred. It wasn't a running injury. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was, you know, just a, a, a human stroke of bad luck that affected his running and everything else. Um, and then, you know, there's you know, the example of, uh, Jamie Whitmore in the book, the, the, uh, world champion, uh, Terra triathlete from back in the day who, uh, just had a, a terrible, terrible cancer ordeal. Um, that again, it was just, it, 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 it didn't, well, I mean, she first noticed it on the, on the race course, you know, how, how it was affecting her, but it was just way, way bigger than that. So, um, there was, it's sort of a both end and, and what I want, you know, by, by like adducing those extreme cases, I wanted to underscore for people that um, it's all the same, you know, recipe, <laughs> you know, whether it is an actual like, you know, garden variety overuse injury or, you know, a pandemic that cancels the race you had your heart set on or something that, you know, a major, you know, debilitating chronic illness or, you know, some other tragedy affecting your life, like, like, you know, the, uh, the playbook that you need to make the best of any of those, uh, situations right across the entire spectrum. It, it's, it's one playbook, you know, again, you know, the specific tool you might pull out for, for one, uh, challenge versus another might, might be different, but, you know, you know, for me, you know, you know, it's, it was ironic, you know, that, you know, right around the time the book came out, um, I got, I got COVID, um, and got really sick and then sort of thought I recovered, but then I descended into the pit of, uh, long COVID. Um, and right now I, I can't run, I can't train. I, I, I'm a former athlete and like, there's, there's, you know, I'm coming up on 10 months in, no, I'm over 10 months in coming up on 10 months into this long haul thing. And, you know, this, you know, what I'm going through, it, it has ended my career as an athlete, at least, you know, for, for now, but, um, but it, you know, it's, but it's also way bigger than that as well. Um, so I, I'm like, I'm in a situation where I, I am very much, <laughs> you know, required to practice what I preach. And, and I really do believe the message to the point that that's exactly the playbook I'm using to, to deal with something that yes, it affects, uh, you know, the athlete, uh, part of, of my life, but it, it also affects every other part of it as well. And yet that line tends to be blurred. I mean, a lot of people, uh, when COVID first started, like, oh, it's just the people who are already sick, who have pre-existing conditions. 
And the truth be told is that it's kind of a little bit of a Russian roulette as far as who gets uh, a, a prolonged case and who gets just the sniffles. And there's no way that we know, at least of, you know, as of the recording of this, that we can tell that. And yet it's treated in some circles very seriously and others with nonchalance. And it really depends on that personal connection. And it seems like with sport, either you get it or you don't. Whereas in life, like you're, you've got these folks that follow sport, some type of sport, doesn't matter what it is, or they do things for sport and they get it. Whereas there's others that they can't really relate to it. It seems like they, they're missing that, that linchpin to keep things moving. How do we as athletes, um, or how do we as coaches rather, connect with those that you know, maybe are just coming into sport who have never done it before, um, maybe they've had COVID. Uh, I, I know a, a, a good friend who's a significant other has long COVID as well. I mean, uh, she's, man, I, th I think a year and a half now and still like just, just now starting to get back to, to daily activities the last couple of months. And it's, it's hard, uh, but using these ath uh, athletic endeavor euphemisms tend to miss home. They just don't get it. Whereas in the book, there is that language where you're describing a situation and a story such that anybody can latch onto it. Is this something that as coaches, we should start to put this out there with people that we know in our, our regular life who may be going through adversity? Or is it, you know, it's so much written for the athletes, like let's start there and let it kind of filter out naturally. Yeah, you know, that, that's a, it's a very interesting question. I, I think it's important to just be right up front and, and admit that, you know, this type of change is very hard. You know, in, in the book, I talk about, you know, I talk about how um, in that first chapter about the ultra realists, um, I, I, I explain how, um, you, know, you know, being able to see reality clearly and accept it, you know, just fully as it is and commit to making the, the best of it and perfect though it may be, like, this is deeply ancient wisdom and it goes all the way back to the Buddha and, and probably, you know, before. Um, and I even, you know, I, I'm kind of a science geek. So I talk about how, um, you know, neuroscientists are, are, are recognizing that our, our brain, you know, consciousness is really set up to do just that, to sort of um, reward the ability to align, you know, the contents of your skull with external reality. And then I pose the obvious question after, you know, th tossing all this science and philosophy at people like, well, why isn't everyone an ultra realist? <laughs> and, <laughs> and then so I go on to, to answer it, you know, just like it's, it, it's, it's not that easy. You know, you know, just because, you know, survival of the, of the fittest is how things work doesn't mean everyone survives, right? So a lot of things that just, you know, you know, you know all, a lot of forms of success are like, they might be obvious, but that doesn't make it easier attainable to everyone. So the, you know, there's a lot of instincts in us, um, and just you know, just limitations, uh, uh, by both you know, general human limitations and also individual limit limitations that make it really hard to get from you know where you are to being you know one of these these ultra realists. And I think it's just best to you know, if all I cared about was selling a lot of books, I would just I would just bullshit people and say it's easy, like you know. You know, here's how you do it and you'll be there you know, next week. But that's simply not true. And, and I encounter a lot of people that um, I, I, you know, I, I feel like 
man, you're never going to get it. <laughs> but, but, but you, you, I mean, you, you still have to try. And then, you know, there are those cases of, you know, people who you think are never going to get it who do. Um, and that, that, that keeps you from ever giving up on, on anyone, but it, it's, it's so hard. It's one of those things that like, even when you think that you've learned the lesson you haven't, you know, or it's, you know, it's, it's just, you, you could slide back, um, you know, the next time, like a novel type of challenge comes up. You know, I, I've seen that with myself. You know, I really thought, I mean, I, I truly have come a long way in, in my own mental fitness. And, you know, I was kind of, uh, per, you know, just, you know, sort of celebrating, especially when I, when I completed the Ironman Santa Rosa, like my, um, my attempt to finish unfinished business that I write about um, in the book. Um, you know, I, I felt like, wow, I have really come a long way. And then I get hit by this long COVID thing. And I found that I was kind of unprepared for it, uh, you know, mentally at certain levels that I was certainly better prepared than I would have been, you know, 15 years before. But I knew, knew for sure that there are other people in the world, uh, some people I know who could be going through exactly what I'm going through and, and negotiate that situation with a more poise than, than I have shown. So it just, it's, it, it's, it's just, it's not easy. Um, and it's best just to go ahead and, and admit it. Um, and, uh, at least, you know, approach the challenge with, with open eyes. Okay. Fasten your seatbelts. You're listening to the strong savvy cyclist and triathlete podcast with coach Menachem Brody. Don't forget to subscribe. That ties into a lot of different things that have been floating around here. And, and before we recorded, I asked you about how, uh, I think I said Santa Clarita instead of Santa Rosa, but I'm, I'm about three and a half chapters in. So I didn't want to skip ahead before the interview. And, you know, I, I don't like doing that. It's like disingenuous, right? Like, or disingenuous, I guess. Uh, I don't know what the word is. Another GRE word. <laughs> um, but uh, the hard part is, is it's so simple, but it's so difficult, right? Like, it can't be that. It's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, it can't be that simple. Well, no, it can be that simple, but it doesn't mean that's easy to practice. Like how do you become really, really good? And speaking of comebacks, actually, this is one of the things that really I'm, I'm just fascinated with right now. The Tour de France here has started and people are just up in arms that Chris Froome had been saying like, he's going to compete in the Tour de France. He's going to ride for the yellow Jersey. And then only two, two and a half weeks before uh, he's only now, uh, said that he's, you know, seated that he's not going for the jersey, he's going as a road captain. And the amount of criticism he's getting, like, do people not realize that he went from literally having to fight to take one step with poles, and he's now out riding a bike with some of the best in the world? Like, that is a huge comeback in and of itself, but it's like not good enough. Is that a societal thing? Or is that our sport of cycling, where we just have these expectations that are completely unreal? Yeah, that's another very good question. And, you know, one of the cool parts of, you know, doing the work I do is that you get to know champion athletes personally. Um, and it's, it's a really uh, useful exercise for, for any athlete because you, you realize just like these aren't super men and super women. They're, they're human beings and, and they, they have kind of the same, you know, you know, bad days and self-doubts um, and hangups and, and weaknesses that we do. And, and so when we see them do amazing things, 
um, it's actually more impressive because they don't have superpowers, <laughs> you know, that they just, they overcome the same kind of stuff that, that we struggle to, to overcome. And that it's been, it's one of like, you know, if you look just, you know, it's one of the through lines of, of my work where I, I, I really, it's, you know, I, I have an agenda to show people just how deeply human and relatable these folks are. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the thought experiment I, I give people sometimes is like, imagine standing on the start line of the Boston Marathon and you are publicly expected to win the race. Imagine that, that pressure. Um, well, guess what? Like the, the person who is actually standing on the start line of the next Boston Marathon and is in fact expected to, to win, they are feeling exactly the pressure that you imagine yourself uh, feeling, you know, if, if you're in their position and, and yet they don't crumble under it usually. Um, so, you know, it, yeah, so it, it's just, it's not fair and it's not right when, when people are too quick to criticize an athlete for failing to be superhuman because they never were in, in the first place. But um, so there's this term I like to throw around. I think it's my own coinage, uh, benign shaming. Um, and I, I do like, I, one of the reasons I, I one of the, the things I hope that comes out of telling some of the stories I do in this book and others I've written is that, you know, people will see, it's like, wow, like this person didn't like overcome like this gigantic challenge uh, because, um, you know, they're a lectoid from the planet 10 here by way of the eighth dimension. And, you know, they're, they're all powerful and nothing can stop them. It's like, no. It was just a human being who bootstrapped his or her way through a challenge that that could affect any any single one of us. And when you realize that, it becomes you know you have to ask like, well, what's my excuse? Because if you think someone, if you think these people do have superpowers, well, then that's your excuse, right? So I think that's that's one of the reasons people like to put the Chris Frooms on a, on a pedestal and hold them to a standard they would never hold themselves to, um, is that they want to believe that. Um, you know, overcoming, you know, big challenges is, um, you know, that, that the reason that others can and they can't is that others have something they don't. And maybe they do have something they don't, but it's something that you can also have <laughs> if you stop making excuses. Well, that's, that's a really interesting point and, and goes back. We've actually had a, a sports psychologist on here. Uh, she's our, our most frequented guest, actually, Dr. Lisa Lewis. And our first episode was episode 22 and, and her term was using your superpowers for good. And you just mentioned, you know, the elite athletes and the all-stars kind of having superpowers, but really each of us has those. It's just a matter of what are we built for? You know, some of us are built for as a Jeep to go bouldering uh, and others are built for the Mojave desert. You know, it's just similar workings, but different special tools. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that we're coming full circle now because that, that sort of like gets back to the burden of personality and, and using what you've got. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, a theme um, that came up in a conversation I had recently with, with yet another, I guess both of us talked to a lot of sports psychologists, um, was, you know, self-knowledge. Um, and I think that theme has actually come up uh, a couple of times, at least in, in our conversation, just you know, it, it's always to your benefit to, to see yourself or things about you with, with clarity, even if it's, there are painful truths that you're forced to see, 
um, you know, just holding up a mirror and 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 recognizing the, that the warts are there. Like you, like you're 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 much you're you're empowered to actually do something about uh, your limitations or your hangups or whatever. Um, if if you see them and recognize them, like if you don't, if you either just don't see them or you choose to pretend they're not there, then you're you're stuck. Um, but on the flip side, yeah, each one of us also has you know superpowers or you know just strengths, um, skills, what, whatever you know things that we're just good at, um, useful um, abilities that we can draw up upon um, to make the best of a particular particular situation. So you know. You know, you could have, um, you know, in, in my book, I emphasize sort of the universals, like, you know, here are the things that all of the ultra realists do on a broad level, you know, to come back from, from adversity. But yes, there are also, you know, particulars. Um, like, um, you know, I give the example in the book of uh, Jeffrey Camor, the uh, Kenyan runner uh, who, who fell on the start line of the World Half Marathon Championships a few years back, um, and got trampled by the runners behind him, and um, and then came back and won the race. Uh, and he was actually there's GoPro footage of it because uh, someone who was was attempting to break the world record for the fastest marathon half marathon run in a Superman costume, who happened to be right behind Jeffrey when he fell, and it's just it's amazing, like you know what you know what he did to, you know, he, you know, he was up against the greatest half marathoners in the world. And he starts the race by like, boom, the gun goes off. He falls flat on his face, gets trampled, loses a bunch of time, runs a uh, four minute mile pace for a kilometer to catch the leaders and then goes on to win. But, but I think, you know, I think I make the point in, in telling that story that, um, you know, not only did he do things that anyone would have to do to the best of a race that starts that disastrous disastrously like you know like not panic like not give up like those those are things anyone would have to do but he also he also did it his way um you know he, he you know he, he's a certain kind of runner so for him it actually worked best to try to make up all the time right away and then sort of like hang in the back gather himself and then surge for the win. Like that's how he did it. But another runner might have, if they recognize like, that's not my skill set, And so they might have the same mental wherewithal to not panic and to not give up, et cetera. But they would actually have to go ahead and execute in a different way based on what they know about themselves as a runner. Um, I hope that's a good example, but, but yeah, so there are certain things, the universals, the, the things like, well, you're just not going to come back if you, you know, don't do X, Y, and Z. But yes, you also have to know yourself, uh, know your strengths and weaknesses, and be able to come up with a specific strategy uh, that you know that that works for you and might not actually be the best strategy for another athlete. Yeah, and and in the book you have that exact uh, juxtaposition in, in chapter one. I believe it was the example of Joan in the the Olympic trials where she actually had to get away, uh, but without getting into a sprint where she actually had to pace herself and, and pick a couple off. She managed to, to work her way up. Same with Miranda Carfrey, where it's a different tactic because they stayed within themselves. And that's something, you know, I, I had my own, and I'm just connecting the dots here myself, but my own story with my injury, I, I broke my fibula in a, a motorcycle accident. Stupid. It was just really dumb, uh, low speed. But anyhow, 
I was sitting there on the on the curb of the road and this bird was chirping in the tree above me and I knew it was broken. Like one of the guys there was like, it's not broken. I'm like, dude, I, I worked on an ambulance. It's, it's broken. <laughs> and the bird was sitting there chirping and that was my, my you know, that uh, flow as Mihaly, Suzanne Mihaly calls it, where I just got into the flow and I'm just watching this bird and people are talking around me and, and I'm not present. And it's just like, I took the bird as saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What's the decision you're going to make? How are you going to treat this? How are you going to treat this? Literally, that's that's the tone that he was doing. And I was like, F this. This is going to be the best thing ever that happened to me. And that is what it wound up being. It was accepting the reality of, great, the ankle's broken. Now what am I going to do? And in that decision, I had, or in that moment, I had made decisions about the next three months. I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to work. I'm going to sacrifice income now to help more people. Uh, and I'm going to pull on my resources so that I'm able to do this and embrace the fact that I'm going to be stuck at home in a third floor walk up for the next three months once I get up there. And then day by day, I just have to figure it out. And none of that, what's interesting is none of those decisions in that instant broke away from who I, I knew I was at my core. None of them was like, oh, we're going to do this and you're going to do that and this and that. And there's all this time. And so many athletes, when they get injured or face that adversity of having a, a knee surgery 17 days before, like, oh, then I'm going to train as much as I can to get there. There's that, there's not that faith, that deep uh, security in knowing that if you stay true to who you are and where you are at that time, you can accomplish great things. Instead, it's this pressure. And usually it's, it's, from nobody but yourself of, I have to do X, Y, and Z because that's what's expected back to where, you know, the intro, my straight line of this degree, this, that. Is this one of the things that separates us from those who have these, you know, huge comebacks in that they have this higher level thinking as um, Howard Marks calls it. They have this higher level thinking where they're like, let's just look at where reality is and call things as they are, as opposed to what we'd like them to be. Is that the, the main underlying theme there or there's more layers to that? Well, that, that is definitely true. <laughs> you know, it, what, it, what it really boils down to is, is being smart, which sounds kind of dumb actually, like, duh. Um, but it, it, it's one of those things that is um, not that easy, you know? Um, it's not easy to be smart when it's you. Um, it, it's a lot easier to be smart when you're telling someone else what they should do. Um, but you, yeah, that's something I, I see time and again, um, is that, you know, athletes, you know, the Joan Benoit Samuelsons of, of the wor world, they, they, they just exercise good judgment. Um, so, you know, in the book, I, I talk about the sort of the three steps of, you know, fully embracing reality, which is what ultra realists do. First, first is acceptance. Second is uh, embracing. And then the third is committing. And that third step, we tend to think if, you know, if we haven't really thought this stuff through, we think, we think of the commitment part is just toughing it out, just like, you know, doing the work, you know, bearing the suffering you have to bear, you know, to, to make the best of a bad situation. But that's, you know, that's, that's only half the story at most. The other half is being smart. Um, and, and so, you know, being tough gets all the attention in, in our culture, but, but being smart is at least as important and in a way is harder because it's, it's not talked about. It's, and, and so you know, if you, if you dissect stories like, you know, Joan Benoit's um, comeback to, to win the uh, 84 Olympic trials marathon, she was just smart. 
Like she, she did not pull that off by being tougher than anyone else. She, it, in fact, she was tougher than everyone else, but that's not what it took. She made, you know, she, 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 she exercised restraint. Um, you know, she, she wasn't just saying, I'm just gonna put up with the pain. No, she took extra days off. She was extra precautious. You know, the whole reason she got the surgery um, was because, you know, she, she just thought it through and realized, you know, like that, that would have been a very, very easy surgery to avoid if you were like a more insecure athlete who was like prone to make sort of like a fear-based decision about, you know, how, how to try to get uh, to the Olympics. Um, and so, you know, jo Joan, it, it was incredibly hard for her, you know, to, to let, you know, um, caution be the better part of valor for her, but she went ahead and did it because, because like, that's what it took. You know, that, that's what you really see is like, you know, for, for the ultra realists, it's not like they don't have one tool that they use for every job. They're, they're able to, they're able to sort of step back, you know, as you did with your fibula and just assess. And it's like, what, what is it going to take to make the best of the situation? And then that's what I'm going to do, you know, you know, regardless, like, I'm not just going to reach for my favorite tool and use it because it's the only tool I have for everything. So yeah, being smart, you know, that, that comes up again and again and again, or, you know, just exercising good judgment. Well, that also, you know, this ties in, I, I've been looking the last couple of years, actually, since I broke my fibula, <laughs> uh, at, you know, as an entrepreneur trying to figure out like, okay, I can grow the business. I can, I can get the return on invested capital, return on equity, but I also need to learn how to invest my money because I don't have a 401k and, uh, you know, anything like that. So you've got to be smart about it. And a couple of people that I followed, uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, a lot, a lot of people know Warren Buffett, especially nowadays. Um, but what you just described with her is a margin of safety and being secure in understanding the process. And that's the same thing that makes the best investors. Like a lot of people think investing is, you know, day trading or uh, gambling on Bitcoin or meme stocks, whatever's hot. But it really is, uh, I think Warren has said that to be a great investor, you need to do due diligence. And then it's malaise bordering on sloth. You don't make money when you trade, you make money while you wait. And mm -hmm. in athletics, we just like, think about, I, I, I beat on compression boots, although I do believe in them in the right time, because so many people are willing to drop six or eight grand, or now I think they're three grand on these pair of boots, but they won't hire a coach to help them avoid the need to use those boots four nights a week. And the margin right. of safety concept is so lost on endurance athletes. What do you mean you want me to, to have a ceiling of 63% of, of my power for my weekend ride? It's a group ride. I can't do that. Well, you've got to be smart, like figure out how to pedal less and keep going fast. I don't need that. I just need to, I need to have a, a you know, intensity factor of 0.83, like, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's going to work. Yeah. In, uh, in a, a previous book of mine, uh, the, um, how bad do you want it? I, I, uh, I use a phrase, uh, the hard work security blanket. And you see that with a lot of athletes, like there's a tendency to think of like the willingness to work hard as this, you know, unqualified virtue. It's like, yeah, you know, hard work is always good, but for a lot of people, it really is a security blanket. It's, it's, you know, 
I, granted, not everyone is willing to work hard, but plenty of people are. And, and for, you know, there's a, a you know, a, a fraction of people who are willing to work hard, who really, it's really a form of laziness. Um, they want that to be the solution of everything. It's like, ah, oh, training's not going well. I'm not feeling good. My workouts stink. I know I need to work harder, you know, <laughs> or, you know, I, you know, I suffered a setback. I'm behind in my training. I know I need to work harder. Um, but that's really, you know, sometimes, I mean, you, I mean, it's obvious you, you need to be able to work hard, but it is, is not in fact the best solution to every challenge <laughs> you might face as an endurance athlete. And yeah, a lot of, a lot of athletes, they just don't want to do other kinds of work. You know, they're, they're willing to do hard training work, um, but they're not willing to invest mental energy, um, into, you know, finding, you know, other solutions to problems that might not be just a, a, as self-evident as, as working hard. Um, so yeah, like you, that's a conversation I, I have to have in one way or another with a lot of athletes, you know, I, I'm, I appreciate that you're hardworking and that you're willing to, you know, to get out there and grind, but like that is not, it's not always the answer. And that seems to be where your books have gone, your writings have gone the last couple of years. I've, I've perused your, your blog. I kind of, I have to admit, I go in, in cycles about three months where I'll get really in and I'll dig back into somebody. And then I kind of like, you know, circle around and, and go through. So I, I haven't actually perused your blog in depth here, but it, it sounds, or recently I should say, it sounds like you've done a, quite a bit of writing on the mental side. And this is coming from after nutrition, after the training plans, after some strength stuff. How, is it kind of, just how you've grown as a coach or is it more of as you've gone through the strength and the nutrition and the training plans, you just kept coming back to, you know, the, the biggest obstacle we have are the six inches between our ears. I think it's mostly just a function of the fact that I've been doing this forever, you know, like I, I'm, I'm super experienced. So I, I always just write about what is top of mind for, for me. Um, and so it, which, you know, I, I'm really at this point, I'm not the guy you want to hire to write, you know, like a, a primer on, uh, I don't know, like some fundamental topic of the sport. Like I, I just been, yeah, I've just been there and done that um, so many times that like, that's not where my curiosity is at this point. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, if, if you, you know, continue your journey as an endurance athlete uh, and or coach, you're going to keep experiencing new things and encountering novel challenges. Um, you know, you know, just being you know, curious about things that, you know, just never crossed your mind, uh, you know, five, 10, 15, 20, 20 years before. And that's sort of where I am now. Like there's, there's still like, I'm still learning and changing, but I'm just so far along in the journey that, the stuff that is, um, you know, I, I'm just not going to sit around really and think much about at this point about kind of, you know, the, the basics of eating smart for endurance. Cause I'm like, well, you know, uh, there's, you know, <laughs> there's nothing left <laughs> there. So yeah, just, you know, but, but, you know, you know, the, the mental, you know, the psychological dimension of the sport, is just a, it's a bottomless well. Um, so having, you know, started running when I was 11 and being 50 now, like I'm pretty confident that I can, I can spin that out for another few decades and still not exhaust the subject. <laughs> yeah. 
It's interesting because that's that's kind of where I, my mind's been for the last five years or so, even as I've started, you know, I wrote my first book and blogs and YouTube and all this other stuff. And it's just like, yeah, I'm talking strength. I'm teaching strength. Um, but I've waited, you know, what, 17 years to actually start sharing that. But really, the interest is on the psychological side, because that's like, I, I don't know about you, but I meet some people who say, you know, oh, so-and-so is going to be the next big star for basketball. I, I work with basketball players here or uh, for cycling here. And I meet them and it's immediate. I do a movement analysis. As soon as I watch, I see somebody, I'm watching how they're moving. This is doing that. But then as soon as we start talking, it's listening to their verbiage, their body language, like seeing how they're expressing things and getting a feel of how down to earth are they? Uh, how much of reality do they grasp? And do they have that switch that they can turn on to go to that dark place? And can they turn it off after? Uh -huh. And it sounds like you're kind of playing in, in a similar but different sandbox. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, it, it sounds to me like you you know your craft <laughs> because uh, that that's I wouldn't do it the same way you do. Like first of all, I couldn't do a movement analysis on, <laughs> on athlete. But 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 even, but even if I could, even if I could, I would probably be paying attention to the same stuff you, you're paying attention to beyond how they move. Uh, so for sure, you know, that, that's, um, that, that's again, you know, another, it, it, I, I just, I feel so blessed to kind of occupy the kind of unique position I do in endurance sports where, you know, I, I, I work primarily with uh, recreational athletes and I communicate primarily with recreational athletes, but I, I interact quite a bit with elite athletes and again, not to paint with too broad a brush stroke, but there, when you do that, when you sort of straddle the two different realms, you see characteristic differences. You see stuff that pretty much all of the champions have mm -hmm. that not too many people um, at other levels of the, of the sport have. I mean, there are, there are plenty of people who, I mean, because they're, you know, the mind, well, there are plenty of people who aren't, you know, terribly physically gifted who have, you know, a champion's mind that there's mm -hmm. nothing stopping that from happening. But my point is like, in order to get on top and stay there, it is not nearly enough to be gifted and, and hardworking. Like you see certain qualities like in athlete after athlete, after athlete, who who's like at the very, in the very highest echelon of the sport. And you, it's impossible to walk away from that experience without recognizing like th these, these are, you know, these like mental characteristics are uh, table stakes, you know, for, 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 for being a champion every much, every bit as much as the genetics are. That's uh, yeah, real. That's such a powerful message. And, and, you know, what I'm running read so far is, is very, very strongly uh, written in and interwoven into the early chapters. So I'm really excited to, to finish the book here and, and get there, but I think one of the questions that I'd like to close with here for the listeners is, you know, it sounds like you've been able to identify and are identifying these themes between the recreational athlete and the champion athletes or elite athletes, if you will. What would be one or two either actions or characteristics that the listeners can start to emulate in their daily lives or in how they go about their thinking that will get them onto the track of getting becoming their own champion the best that they can be in whatever they choose to do 
you know, the, the, the thing I end up doing when I, and I actually, I, I sort of didn't do this in the book. I probably should have, but you know, if I want to give people uh, one bit of advice that's actionable that they can use to, to get going uh, you know, on the road toward becoming an ultra realist. Um, and I actually ended up writing a blog post about this to make up for uh, the, 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 um, the lapse uh, in, in the book itself. But it, the advice is to treat negative emotions the same way you do pain. Um, so one of the things I like about my approach to sports psychology, and I am not a sports psychologist, is that even as an athlete myself, I was never a big fan of like having to make time to do mental training, you know, like outside of, you know, the, the, the actual context of physical training or, or whatever else, you know, just, I, I don't, like, I'm not a meditator. I'm not, I don't journal. <laughs> um, so for me, like as a coach, I, I feel like there's actually kind of no need. I mean, not to say that that stuff isn't valuable, but, but for me, there's, there's no particular need for it because all you, all you really have to do is wait for a problem to happen. <laughs> and, and when a problem happens, there is your opportunity to do mental training. And, and so, you know, a problem arises and don't worry if you don't have one now, you're going too soon. <laughs> this is, you know, this is the journey we've signed up for. Um, like when you have that problem, like the way you approach solving it should be intentional and informed by, you know, your understanding of, of you know, what it means to be mentally fit and how you become mentally fitter. So every time a problem comes up, not only are you trying to solve that, that specific problem, but you're, you're using it as an opportunity to, you know, practice, um, you know, your, your, your mental game and, and elevate it. So when the next problem comes along, you, know, you deal with it more successfully, even if it's, you know, completely different in nature. Um, so the way you know that a problem has arisen as an athlete, I mean, sometimes, it's abundantly obvious, but anytime you experience a negative emotion, like uh, anxiety, frustration, disappointment, like that is your signal that there is a problem. Um, and then, and, and so what I encourage athletes to do is just um, try to catch those moments as quickly as possible. So instead of simply feeling anxious or frustrated, recognize that you're feeling that and, and understand just as you do with pain, that it is signaling a problem and, and there's nothing wrong with problems. You, you, you want them as an athlete, but you know, when they arise, just, you know, if you, if you just see it in those terms, that, that is your opportunity to go to work and, and sort of like, okay, how would an ultra realist uh, manage the situation? And you're, you're not going to do it as well as an ultra realist would on day one. That's fine. It's a process. Um, but that's, that's, that's the way I would recommend, you know, just sort of getting started on that road. Absolutely love it, man. There's so many parallels uh, to that, but we won't go into it. The, the listeners should pick up uh, the Comeback Quotient. Can you tell them uh, where they can connect with you, where they can find you, and where they can find uh, the Comeback Quotient and your other writings? Yes. Uh, so my personal website is mattfitzgerald.org. Um, my, my business is 8020endurance, 8020endurance.com. That's where my, my blog that I've mentioned a million times uh, lives. Um, the, on my personal website, mattfitzgerald.org, there's a books page where you can uh, find and purchase, learn more about uh, the Comeback Quotient and the zillion other books that I've written. Well, Matt, I absolutely love having you. Uh, this was a fantastic conversation. We went down a couple rabbit holes and got to have a couple <laughs>, laughs as well, some old GRE words. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for everything you've shared over the years. I mean, the, the fact that you've just kind of uh, gone through and wherever 
you've gone or, or where things have carried you your way, you, you made it happen. You not only did that, you also brought us along for the ride and shared your experiences and, and, and teachings and what you learned. Uh, and on behalf of myself and the listeners, thank you so much for doing that, man. You've really uh, made the endurance athletic world uh, a far better place uh, through your sharings and your teachings. Well, thank you for that. Uh, that that's, uh, that's, that's a kind thing to say. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to, to chat with you. I might have to, the, the soon to launch 8020 Endurance podcast, I might have to return the favor and, and uh, fire the questions at you to answer on, in that forum. Yeah, I'd love to, man. I like getting peppered. This was a great conversation. I didn't feel like we were, it was questions. It was just talking and just uh, learning. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, let's do it again uh, in, in Mikasa next time. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> well, let's go. That's it for this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast with world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Don't miss an episode. Hit that subscribe button and give us a review. For more exclusive content, visit humanvortextraining.com or get the latest expert videos from Coach Brody on the HVT YouTube channel at HV Training. Until next time, remember to train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you.